0: So last week, we began a new sermon series on polity. I know that this might be an obscure topic for many of us. Like, What is church polity? What's uh, church polity or church governance? Uh, it deals with very important and practical questions, like who is in and out of the church? What are the officers to be and do? And how are decisions to be made in the church? These are very important questions. So last week, we looked at the ordinances. Today, we'll look at officers officers. And next week, we'll close by looking at authority. So let's get right into today's sermon on officers. To begin, let me read the description of the trailer for the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. It says this. When Mars Hill Church was planted in Seattle in on 1996, few would have imagined where you would be but in the next 18 years, it would become one of the largest, fastest-growing, and most influential churches in the United States. Controversy plagued the church, though, due in no small part to the lightning-rod personality at its home, Mark Driscoll. By 2014, the church had grown to 15,000 people in 15 locations. But before the year was over, the church collapsed. On January 1st, 2015, Martha was gone. End quote. You know, it's heartbreaking to hear stories like this
1: of how pastors fall and how
0: the church collapses along with them. But at the same time, we need to also acknowledge in sober judgment and healthy fear that these stories could be our home. In one of the episodes that host of the podcast said this, this is hardly an isolated phenomenon. Why do we keep doing this? Why are we regularly platforming people whose charisma outpaces their character and who leave devastation in their wake? Something attracts us, we buy in, and then we watch the collapse like spectators at a demolition theater. The proper response to such devastating stories like this is not to lose hope in healthy leadership or to just watch. That is passive spectators. And we're not passive spectators. We understand ourselves as members of the church. We are fellow members in this body, fellow brothers and sisters in this family. We are not passive spectators. Rather, we must learn to recognize biblically qualified leaders, and we ourselves should aspire to be biblically qualified leaders, even if we never lead and serve in a formal office of the church. Leadership in the church is not meant to be abused nor abandoned, but we need more biblically qualified leaders to lead and serve Christ's church. So the one thing for today is we need biblically qualified leaders to lead and serve Christ's church. Each week we usually preach expositional sermons in one passage of scripture, but today in this entire sermon series, uh, we're taking a different approach. We're looking at various passages of scripture to address issues and issues today, particularly related to the officers of elders and deacons. Uh, Let me just note that the terms elder, pastor, and overseer all refer to the same biblical office in the New Testament. So I'll be using those three terms synonymously and interchangeably, elder, pastor, overseer. Uh, We'll look at the officers in two parts. First, what are elders and deacons to be? And then second, what are elders and deacons to do? So first, what are elders and deacons to You know, I know that as we look at the biblical biblical qualifications of elders and deacons, it's easy for many of us who are not elders or deacons and who are not aspiring to be elders or deacons just to check out as if this does not pertain to you. But let me just caution you not to do that for a couple reasons. First, we must learn how to recognize biblically qualified leaders because there are devastating consequences. When someone who is not with the is given a leadership office in the church. And again, we're not passive observers. We have to recognize who is in that office and who we put into that office. Second, almost all the qualifications given for elders and deacons are not unique. But they are ordinary traits for the most part that scripture clearly expects for all Christians. In other words, as you hear the biblical qualifications for elders and deacons, and let's say as you're hearing it, you begin to realize, I don't think I'm qualified. That should not put you at ease. That should be very alarming that you don't think you're qualified. let me explain. Even if we never lead and serve as a church leader, we should all aspire to be biblically qualified leaders. Because for the most part, it just means that you're a healthy Christian. If you hear this and you're saying I'm not qualified, you should not feel comfortable. You should be a little bit alarmed. Why am I not qualified? I think there's something a little bit wrong in my followers with Christ. I should not be complacent with this. I should continue to mature. I should, I should continue to grow in my conformity to Christ. It should actually spark and encourage us to continue to grow into full maturity in Christ. So with that, A preface let's first look at elder qualifications first timothy chapter 3 verses 1 to 7 say this this thing is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer he desires a noble task therefore an overseer must be above reproach a husband of one wife sober-minded self-controlled respectable hospitable able to teach not a drunkard not violent but gentle not quarrelsome not a lover of money And there's actually a lot of overlap between elder qualifications and deep qualifications. So we're going to spend the significantly more time here on elder qualifications and move a little uh, much more briskly through deep qualifications. Um, we'll broadly define divide these elder qualifications into three categories: one related to motivation, character, and abilities. So regarding motivation, an elder must desire this noble task, faithfully shepherd God's people is hard work and it will demand much from you. Much more than you could ever learn in seminary. For myself, I've been lied to, slandered, cursed at, scammed for money by someone I've known loved for over a decade. I've been blamed for not being involved enough. I've been accused of getting too involved. I've been at times the only person and someone like confronting them with blatant sin. I've watched members go headfirst into sin despite multiple people trying to warn them and help guide them to disobedience. I've pursued every member I know of who has disappeared from our church. I've mediated conflicts between members who have thought the worst of each other. And after walking beside a member through struggles of faith for several months, I cried beside her and she told me that she no longer believed. Seminary, as great as it is, does not. If you do not freely desire the office, then you'll probably burn out and walk away quit. That doesn't mean that everyone who aspires to be an elder shouldn't be an elder, but if there is little desire for the role, you probably shouldn't be an elder. But that also doesn't mean that desires are static. Your desires grow and they diminish. We should be looking for those whose desire to be an elder grows, even as they experience all kinds of difficulties. And disappointments in the life of the church. Now, given what I've just said, why would anyone in their right mind desire to be an elder? scripture says, because it's a noble task. The office of elder is noble because it is following in the steps of our Lord Jesus, who is the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. And elders are just under shepherds of the chief shepherd. And it's a great privilege. Now, regarding character, first, an elder must be above reproach. This is an umbrella qualification for the rest of the qualifications that are, that are going to follow. Uh, it's in their outward, conduct. Elders are like to be blameless. That doesn't mean that they're morally perfect by any means. None of us are. But it means that they're overall godly. By the way that they live in private and in public, in as much as people can tell and see, there's no serious charge of wrongdoing or immorality that people can make against them. It means that their overall demeanor and behavior have earned the respect and admiration of others. Now again, this should be true of all members of a church, but this is vital for an elder. Positively, that means that elders should be exemplary members long before the church ever recognizes them to be elders. Are they in regular attendance of the church gatherings? Are they discipling people around them, intentionally helping them to follow Christ? Are they faithful with responsibilities already given to them? If not, we probably don't want to hold them up as an example for the church to follow. Now, negatively, negative. It means that when an elder who is held up as a model for the Christian life falls, the ramifications are huge. Not just on their own relationship with God and their families, which is bad enough, but on the entire church and its gospel witness to the watching world. We don't have to look far to find scandals among pastors that have damaged members' feet, torn apart churches, and ruined their gospel witness in the city. Elders must be above reproach. So, would any of your family members, friends, co workers, classmates, Would they be surprised if they heard that you were a leader in the church? Is there anything in your life that if it were exposed, meaning you've been trying to keep it in the dark, if it were exposed, would bring shame on you, the church, or the gospel that you proclaim? I'll just let us ponder that. Second, an elder must be a one woman man. That's a literal translation of the phrase, the husband of one wife, a one woman man. This does not prohibit single men from being elders. It just means that all sexual activity was designed by God to be enjoyed only in an exclusive covenantal marriage relationship with one spouse. That means that any sexual act that is meant to be experienced only in that marriage context is forbidden or prohibited outside that marriage context. Now, I know that this text is referring specifically to men, but again, especially in terms of character, these qualifications are of a healthy Christian, whether you're male or female. And I know that this struggle of sexual lust is not only a struggle for men, but also for women. So even though I'm going to be unpacking this section for men, if you're a woman, please do not check out. These principles still pertain to you on a character level, just as much as Now, sexual lust should never be thought of in a vacuum. It's not just an isolated thing. There's always a context for it. Lust always has the context of marriage. Marriage is always a view when we think about lust. That means that you're not a one-woman man if you watch images of sexually revealing women with lustful intent, content, because those desires are meant only to be aroused to pursued in the context of marriage. You're not a one-woman man if you physically stimulate yourself, even with no images in your mind, because that sexual activity was designed to be enjoyed in the context of marriage, not selfishly by yourself. You're not a one-woman man if you're touching or being touched in a sexual way that should only be experienced in the context of marriage. It doesn't matter if your wife, your pastor, your parents, when your friend says it's okay, God says it's not okay. But why is that? Why are these things sinful outside the context of marriage? Because scripture says that marriage was designed by God to reflect his relationship with his people. Christ is the husband, the church is the bride. So when we look lustfully at women, who are not our spouse, we lie about the relationship that exists between Christ and the church. When we selfishly stimulate ourselves or others rather than mutually enjoying such sexual experiences with our spouses only, we lie about the relationship that exists between Christ and the church. And when we do such things, we basically say that we are not in a special, exclusive, covenantal, loving relationship with Christ. Rather, we say that we are in a casual, open, non-committal, self-seeking relationship with Christ, where he's just an add-on to our lives in as much as he suits our desires. But it's totally fine to selfishly satisfy our own desires in any other way too. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should know how distorted of a lie that is. That is not the gospel. Now, don't misunderstand me, though. I don't believe I'm any harder on sin than the, the Bible is. The Bible says sin deserves that hell, actually. That's why Christ went to the cross to take hell upon himself, because that's what we deserve for our sins. I don't think I'm sin so hard, so harder, so seriously, more seriously than the Bible does. And if we just kind of just let it slide, what well it's but not, it's nothing. It's just a little clip up here and there. I don't think we quite understand the cross. You know, my purpose is not to make you feel guilty or condemned. And I don't think that's what the Bible's do either. There's grace, there's resurrection, there's sanctification, there's glorification, there's so much more to come. And yet we have kind of show that all the signs that this is enough. This is all the gospel I need. You know, I don't want to do that other stuff. And we just rob ourselves. We actually like that place have this time to live. I'm not saying this to make us feel guilty or condemn. But I'm saying these things to awaken our sensitivity to sin that might have become so dull or hardened or callous because we've been living in it over and over and over again, excusing ourselves, convincing ourselves, rationalizing that it's no big deal. And I want to awaken our sensitivity to sin again and help us to recognize how much it distorts our functional understanding of the gospel itself. It's only when we can see sin as utterly sinful that we can begin to truly repent beyond the surface consequences but at the root level of our hearts. And it's only then that we can truly experience grace Full grace, not just declared righteous, but grace that makes us more righteous. Grace that makes us experience greater satisfaction than anything else in this world. A transformed life in Christ. That's not possible unless we see sin for what it is first. And repent of that. I want us to experience a full life in Christ. I desperately want that for us, not just the play church, play Christian here and there in our lives but I want Christ to be our all in all. I want us to fear for the state of our soul more than we fear for any potential consequences that may or may not be experienced. The gospel tells us that we're all created by God and accountable to him, yet we've all sinned against him and rightfully deserve his wrath. But in love, God sent Jesus Christ as our substitute to live a perfect righteous life we could not live did not live and did not want to live, and to die the death that we deserve on that cross. So that now we repent of our sins and believe in the resurrected Christ as Lord and Savior. We are declared righteous in God's sight. We are being progressively made more righteous in our lives and we will one day be completely righteous and glorified with our Lord. That's the hope of the gospel message. The full story. In other words, the gospel tells us that God is not surprised our sin. You might be surprised how sinful you are, but God is not. Other people might be surprised how sinful you are. But God is not. He knew all our past, present, and future sins. He knew how sinful we were, how sinful we are, and how sinful we will continue to be. And yet, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. He is not surprised, and he still chose to go to the cross for me, for me, for anyone who turn to him in faith. Scripture gives us numerous examples of how our God is a God who saves murderers. Just let that so hit. Why do you think God gives us these examples in Scripture? These are the kinds of people that he saves. Murderers, adulterers, Cowards, liars, hypocrites, prostitutes. That's our God. No matter what your sin is, no matter how deep you're in it, no matter what the earthly consequences may be, if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God will save you to the uttermost. He will save you from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day even from the presence of sin itself. That is our God. And I desperately want us to know, trust, and live in this good news. But that begins with being honest about how sin is utterly sinful and how we are totally depraved in our sin. That's the starting point. No, if you're struggling with lust, please confess it willingly, solely, and repentantly to trusted brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not saying tell it to everybody. Please don't misunderstand me. Tell it to a few trusted, godly, mature brothers and sis- or sisters in Christ who will take sin seriously but who will also take grace seriously. You know, I know how easy and tempting it might be to brush it off as something minor. But I have seen firsthand how destructive this struggle can be when it's kept in the dark. And I cannot emphasize this enough. It will destroy you. It will either destroy you eternally, destroy you temporarily, or you can willingly confess and allow God to heal you right now and to go through this hard process of sanctification. It will come out. You will spend your whole life trying to bury it. It will come out. It will come out when you stand before the Father one day, and that is the worst time for it to come out. Or it will come out at some other point in your life and it will destroy you then. Or you repent of it now. Turn to God. Confess it to a few brothers and sisters. Trust in Godly mature. Who will walk with you, who will point you
1: to the gospel,
0: who will help you to experience a full life in Christ. I hope you'll choose the latter. You know, we don't want to cultivate a culture of dismissal or condemnation, but we want a culture where anyone can come into the light with their struggles and can find that brothers and sisters around them will take their sins seriously, take God's grace seriously, because they love that person and are willing to help them to live in the light and find true freedom in Christ. Now, I recommend reading a book called "More Than a Battle" by Jill Rigney uh, within a group of trusted, a small group of trusted brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, discussing it together, taking steps towards intentionally helping one another to follow Christ uh, in this area. Uh, this book is written primarily for men, but I think women who struggle with this would also greatly benefit from it. You know, even if you, you personally don't struggle with this issue, it's common enough of a sin issue that I highly encourage you to get equipped to better help those around you who likely struggle with this, so that when they share with you, hopefully they they trust you enough to do so, that you actually will know how to respond in helpful, godly manners. So that's one woman, man. Third, an elder must be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. The word sober-minded can also be translated as temperate or vigilant, it's the idea of being watchful and cautious of himself. He does not give in to unchecked passions or emotions. Now, don't mistake this for lack of authenticity or being real. You know, it's, not, it's not being real, just do whatever you feel like it in the moment. This is about being wise. Simply put, it's foolish to live in such a way where you're just blindly following your passions from moment to moment. We know what that looks like if you just look at children. And I don't think any of us want to be like that. They're hard to be around. I love children. Don't, don't mistake that. <laughs> you know, we're called to be self-control and respectable. Anyone who lashes out in anger, anyone who doesn't bridle their tongue but just says whatever comes to mind without any consideration for how it affects other people, anyone who indulges himself in the latest trends, Netflix, games, shopping, pornography, alcohol, drugs, or any other addictive behavior is not. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Again, that doesn't mean that Christians don't struggle with these things. Please don't misunderstand me. We do. We struggle. We all struggle with these things. And in Christ, we trust that he is progressively sanctifying us more and more into his likeness. But in order for someone to be an elder, he must be sanctified to the point where he is not just foolishly following whatever he thinks he feels in the moment, but he wisely keeps his passions in check so that he can conduct himself in a wise, loving, and respectable manner. Fourth, an elder must be hospitable. Hospitality doesn't necessarily mean that we host a lot of gatherings in our home, even though that that could be the case. To be hospitable literally means to be a lover of strangers. That could mean greeting newcomers, building relationships with those who are different than you, generously supporting those who are in need, or sharing openly and inviting people into your life. But the key is that you do this for people regardless if they reciprocate. There's nothing special about loving people who love you back in return. But it's commendable when you love those who may not love you back in return. And that's the risk of loving strangers. You just don't know how they're going to respond. You don't know if they're going to reciprocate or not. You put yourself out there in a vulnerable position and you don't know what's going to happen. But you do know that being hospitable is a way to tangibly share the love of Christ. And that should be all the motivation we need. So after Sunday celebration, during life, other informal contexts, let's take bold steps to love those who are love, love those who are strangers to us, or to love those who might feel like strangers um, in a group setting. Fifth, an elder must be sober, gentle, and peacemaking. In the text, these are all stated negatively not a drunker, not violent, not quarrelsome. You can say that these are negatively stating what was said earlier positively as being sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. I'm just gonna focus on not being quarrelsome or to say it positively, he's peacemaking. He can discern what hills to die on and what hills are just foolish, ignorant controversies that he shouldn't get sucked into. He doesn't breed quarrels, but he brings peace to them. He's kind to everyone, teaches patiently, corrects with gentleness, and hope that God would be the one to grant repentance, faith and knowledge of the truth. Now think about yourself. Would you say that that describes you? Do you do everything you can to maintain unity in the church or do you just add fuel to the fire? Do you just vent out all of your complaints unchecked, not worrying about the consequences that causes to the whole body? Sixth, an elder must not be a lover of money. Just like all Christians, elders should be free from greed and love for money, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. This doesn't mean that elders should struggle to financially provide for their families, but they should live according to their means, which inasmuch as is up to the church, should be fair compensation. An elder should be marked by their generous and sacrificial giving, which evidences freedom from the love of money. So is he a good financial steward of the resources God has entrusted to him? Does he give generously to the work of the church? Does he support the needs of others when opportunities arise? When his income increases, does he increase his standard of living or does he increase his standard of giving? Does he make decisions that show more regard for money than for people? Meaning he's making decisions based off of what would bring more money, even at the expense of people So that's not a lover of money. Seven, an elder must be mature and humble. Now, this is not necessarily just a matter of time and age. You can be old and foolish, and you could be young and wise. Rather, this is a matter of spiritual maturity. And do not mistake giftedness for maturity. There are exceptionally gifted children who finish university before their teenage years even begin but that does not mean that they're ready to be parents. In the same way, there are exceptionally gifted preachers and teachers and communicators and leaders and managers, but that does not mean that they have the spiritual maturity necessary to be a good pastor. In fact, it would be wise to recognize recognize a less gifted preacher and teacher, as important as that is, for a pastor who has the spiritual maturity to bear the weight Test responsibilities. All of them, not just preaching and teaching. A man may be a successful entrepreneur and businessman, but be a terrible father, terrible husband. A man may be a less successful worker in the eyes of this world, but be a model father, a model husband. Don't be captivated by giftedness, but learn to recognize true spiritual charity. And one of the biggest markers of that is humility. In fact, that's the rationale that's given here in Scripture. Recent converts are prone toward conceit or pride when given leadership positions too early. They begin to think more highly of themselves than they ought. They begin to lord it over the flock, put under their care, viewing themselves as above their flock rather than as one of them. They begin to develop an inability to submit to others, even fellow leaders, especially when they disagree with them. They become insecure to any criticism because their identity becomes so attached to their leadership position and perceived competence. They begin to develop an overconfidence in the face of spiritual temptations and dangers, thinking that they can handle it themselves without accountability. And pride comes before the fall. And the higher the leadership position, the greater the fall will be. Eighth, an elder must be respected by outsiders. And this is coming uh, back full circle to being above reproach. If an elder is well-respected inside the church but poorly regarded outside the church, something is amiss. Something's not right. Of course, the world hated and rejected Jesus. So there is a right kind of reproach uh, that is to be borne by followers of Christ. But that's not what this text is talking about. This is not talking about people thinking poorly of you because of your faithfulness to Christ and the gospel. This is talking about people thinking poorly of you because of your ungodly character and behavior. On some level, this means that an elder should be engaged with the wider community outside the church enough that those outside the church have an informed opinion about him. If he never engages with others outside the church, something also isn't quite right either. Now, before we transition to the abilities category, again, I spent a lot of time here. Because I want us to notice that all these character qualifications are quite ordinary and what is to be expected of any Christian. And in that sense, we should all aspire to be character qualified, even if we never actually become elders, because that's the picture of a healthy Christian, and we should all aspire to that. Now, regarding abilities, first, an elder must be able to teach. Every other qualification so far has been fitting for any Christian, but this This is one qualification that sets an elder apart from any other mature Christian. He must be able to teach. Not just teach in a generic sense, but he has to be able to faithfully teach God's word. You know, in the Great Commission, disciples of Christ are formed and matured when the church takes seriously Christ's call of teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you. Faithfully teaching God's word is central to Christian discipleship and the mission of the church. So elders must be able to teach God's word with clarity, coherence, and fruitfulness. That means both being able to give instruction in sound doctrine and being able to defend it against false teaching. That doesn't necessarily mean that he needs to be a gifted preacher, per se, but teaching can be exhibited in large group gatherings, small group gatherings, one-on-one settings. It can be in the form of sermons, classes, or counseling. The main point is, that he, is faith, that he faithfully understands and yields God's word in a way that is clear, true, and edifying to others. But that begins, of course, with being teachable himself, humbly and joyfully receiving the ministry of God's word from others, other teachers, other faithful teachers. Second, an elder must be a leader at home. If a man is not a good husband or father, he will not be a good elder. Because if he does not know how to manage his own household, how will he manage the household of God? If if a man is the head of household, then this is a baseline requirement. This is a lesser to greater uh, rationale or reasoning. If he cannot manage a smaller household, he will not be able to manage a larger household. Earlier when speaking of an elder being a one-woman man, the focus was on how he loves and cares for his wife. Here the focus is on how he loves and cares for his children. So if you have children, would they say that you're an absentee father? An unaffectionate tyrant who just see them as obstacles or hindrances to the rest of your life? Or would they say that you're someone who exemplifies healthy authority in the home and they love you? They willingly submit to you. Is your household one of law without grace? Or grace without law? Or is it law and grace? Only the Latin law and grace matches a proper working out of the gospel. And if we cannot work that out in our home, it would be that much harder to work it out in a larger household. Of course, I'll be first, I'll be the first to say that nobody is quote unquote ready to be a husband and father. It will completely rock your will turn it upside down, it will make you think that you know absolutely nothing. We all have to grow into that role once we're in it. But, and this is important, don't expect your family life to improve if you don't invest it. If you want to have a great marriage and family, you need to invest in it. And that's just a universal principle of life. What you ignore and put little effort into will not grow with So those are the qualifications of an elder given in 1 Timothy 3. But I need to mention uh, one note. The scripture is very clear that the office of elders is only open to biblically qualified men. Now I won't be able to give a thorough explanation of this right now, but please just allow me to give a few preliminary reasons. In the passage that we just read, we see that an elder is to be a one-woman man and is to lead his own household well before being qualified to lead the household of God. And in other parts of Scripture, God has called men. So lead in marriage and parenting. Also, in the passage right before giving these qualifications to elders, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter two, verse twelve: "I do not permit a woman to teach, or to exercise authority over a man." Now, let me be clear. This is not a prohibition on all teaching, but specifically on the authoritative doctrinal instruction in the public assembly reserved for elders. Now, let me elaborate on that for a second. It's important to distinguish between the general teaching office and the special teaching office. The general teaching office includes all believers and describes the general ministry of education. So, for example, all believers are commanded to let the word of Christ dwell in university teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs, and heavy scripture songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This was actually our theme verse for last year, reverberate, because it applies to the whole church, men and women, male or female, all believers. We have this. General teaching office. But the special teaching office is reserved only for qualified elders whom God equips and whom he calls his church to recognize, obey, and submit to. The office of an elder is a leadership position of authority. So when it says that women are not permitted to teach or exercise authority over men, it's best understood within the context of public worship and in reference to the special teaching office of an elder in the local church, not as an absolute gender distinction. That's not the primary context that it's talking about. So brothers, men, if a sister in Christ pulls you aside to teach or admonish you regarding something in your life, they are obeying Colossians 3, verse 16, the general office of teaching that we all hold as believers. And you would be wise to listen humbly and learn from them. Do not pull out 1 Timothy 2.12, which is regarding the special office of teaching, as an excuse not to listen to your godly sisters. That's a misuse of scriptures. That's disrespectful to your sister. And that's detrimental to your own spiritual well-being. Now to be clear, men and women are equally created in the image of God. And they have equal dignity, value, and standing. But they are still nonetheless created differently by God's good design. Both men and women are co-heirs of the grace of life, who together reflect in a complementary way the beauty of the image of God. The image of God is not just a, one, a one-way thing. It's two working in tandem together. And you see the beauty of that interaction. And you see the image of God. When we look at other parts of Scripture, we see that women are given spiritual gifts without gender distinction, encouraged to teach sound doctrines to other women and children, Permitted to teach sound doctrines and men outside public worship and to speak prophetically inside public worship, as long as it is not done in or confused with the special teaching office or function of elder. I know that you probably still have so many questions regarding this, but this is not the main part of the sermon, but I needed to address it. So uh, I try to do it my best as simply as possible, but I know that I, I cannot do justice to it at this point. So those are the elder qualifications. Now let's look at teaching qualifications. And we'll go through these a little bit more uh, quickly, but me going per se through this doesn't undermine the importance. Both elders and deacons are very important to the church, uh, but because there's a lot of overlap, we are going to go over deacon qualifications a bit more quickly. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8 to 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain.
1: They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience,
0: and let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Your wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well, their own households well. For those who serve well, as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Again, since there's so much overlap between elder and deacon qualifications, I'm not going to expound this in detail, but I'm just going to point out a general pattern and then I'll make one important note. So in terms of a general pattern, just like above reproach was the umbrella qualification for elders, here, dignified or worthy of respect is the umbrella qualification for deacons. And there are three negatives and two positives that are here. Negatively, deacons are not to be double-tongued, addicted to much wine, nor greedy for dishonest gain. Positively, they are to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, be tested and proven, and have a faithful family life. So that's a very brief overview. Now, one important note that I wanna make is that the office of deacon is open to both men and women. If we look at verse 11, their wives likewise can also be translated as women likewise in reference to women deacons. This translation is more likely for a few reasons. First, the possessive pronoun their and their wives is actually not present in the text, but it's inferred. And wives can also be translated as women. So this is a legitimate translation. Second, the qualifications for women deacons in verse 11 are roughly equivalent to the deacons in verse 8. It says, dignified, dignified, not slanderous, not double-tongued, sober-minded, not addicted to much wine, faithful in all things, not greedy for dishonest gain. Third, if deacons were to have qualifications for their wives to make them qualified to be, to be a deacon, then surely elders would also have qualifications for their wives to be qualified as elders. But that's not the case. Fourth, negatively speaking, Scripture nowhere prohibits women deacons as opposed to women elders. There is no version for deacons as there, uh, of First, First Timothy uh, 2.12 uh, as there is for elders. And fifth, positive, positively speaking, a woman named Phoebe is called a deaconess in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. So those are A brief overview of deacon qualifications. So, first, what are elders and deacons to be? And second, what are elders and deacons to do? In the big picture, elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, and the congregation does ministry. And this gives us a good paradigm for how the officers function in the life of the church. Elders and deacons do not do all the ministry, but they lead and facilitate ministry that the congregation does. It's not a bunch of members that are just passively saying, You guys are the professionals. You guys are the qualified ones, so you do it all. That's not an accurate picture of Scripture. The congregation does the ministry. Elders and deacons need to facilitate that. So let's first look at elder responsibilities. When we look at the synonymous terms used for elder, that is pastor, overseer, and elder, we can already begin to understand what elders are responsible for in the life of the church. So first, the term pastor highlights the feeding, nurturing, and protecting of the flock. In Scripture, pastoring is linked with teaching. When describing the gifts that the ascended Christ gives to his church, the Apostle Paul pairs together pastors and teachers, which is best understood as teaching shepherds or pastor teachers. That's why elders must be able to teach. In another list of elder qualifications, it elaborates this qualification Titus chapter 1 verse 9. It says this, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who it. So here we see that pastor's Feed and nurture their flocks by faithfully teaching sound doctrine from God's word. And they protect their flock by calling out false doctrine that is not in accordance with God's word. Now as part of protecting, elders should also pray for those entrusted to their care. The apostles told the church in Jerusalem that they must devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And Jesus said to the apostle Peter in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Simon, Simon, or Peter, Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So elders are to feed, nurture, and protect God's people through the ministry of the word and prayer. And one thing just to keep in mind in of this is pastors should know who the members are. I mean, that's already assumed that it's a given. Uh, otherwise, they can't faithfully carry out this office in praying for the members if they don't know who the members even are. Closely tied to the teaching of sound doctrine is also the carrying out of discipline when members' lives do not align with the gospel. Uh, for God's word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, but for every good. So God's word is not just for teaching, but also for correction, discipline. While church discipline is the work of the entire church, pastors must must teach and lead the church in the health practice of church discipline. So that's pastor. Second, the term overseer highlights the leadership and direction for the church. Overseers have governing or ruling authority. The Greeks used this term to define an office that had superintending functions, whether in a political or religious context, and it implied that they would care for or watch over others, especially those in need. It was a title given to state officials who acted as supervisors in maintaining public order. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to keep an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. So that would be of no advantage to you. Elders are called to keep watch over the souls of those entrusted to their care. And I just said this, I'll say it again. Pastors need to know their members. They don't have to know every single detail about them. But at the very least, they should know who they are. They should be praying for them. And they should know something about their lives and what they're going through as best as possible within capacity. In this way, just as Christ is called the chief shepherd and overseer of your soul, Elders are called to be under shepherds and under overseers of their members' souls, and the authoritative office entrusted to them. Since the elders are given this leadership role, like they are called to direct the affairs of the church well for the good of the members, and they will one day stand before God to give an account for how they carried out their responsibility. And that is a weight that elders should feel. I will stand before God to give an account of how I pastored his flock. Third, the term elder highlights the spiritual maturity required for the office. Uh, this is needed because elders are to be exemplary models for the rest of the congregation of what it looks like to follow Christ in the fellowship of the church. Elders are called to be distinct as examples to the flock. That's why much of their qualifications are related to their character. Positively, the church is exhorted to imitate their faith. But negatively, later in First Timothy, elders are to be publicly admonished and possibly even removed from office if they persist in sin, in order to serve as a negative example to the rest of the congregation. So, either way, one way or another, elders are going to serve as an example, either positively or negatively, just like parents. Either way, they're going to serve as an example, whether they want to or not, because they are in that office. They're either gonna be positive examples or negative ones, but they cannot help but to be examples. So in summary, we can understand elder responsibilities as the four Ds, which are embedded into these three synonymous terms. The four Ds are doctrine, discipline, direction, and distinction. Pastor encompasses doctrine, direction, discipline, overseer encompasses direction, and elder encompasses distinction. Uh, one last thing I'll say about elder responsibilities Is that they were never meant to rest solely on the shoulders of a single elder. The responsibilities are just too weak. That no man can bear them alone for a very very long time in a healthy manner. They might look like on the outside that everything's going okay, but I guarantee you, they will not be able to do it in a healthy manner over the long haul. They were never meant to. Throughout scripture, unless a particular elder is addressed, we see elders always used in the plural meaning that each local church had more than one elder. However, the plurality principle should never trump biblical qualifications. We should aim to have the plurality of elders to shoulder the leadership responsibilities in the church together, but never at the expense of only having biblically qualified elders. It's better to have one biblically qualified elder as hard as that is than to have three biblically unqualified elders Elders who destroy the church, hard, very hard, to destroy the church. You pick very hard. Now let's briefly turn to deacon responsibilities. In short, deacons are to be shock absorbers and servants. I know that sounds a bit strange, so let me explain. First, deacons are to be shock absorbers. In Acts 6, there was a potentially divisive issue that was brought up to the apostles. Within the church of Jerusalem, the Greek-speaking Jews began to complain against the Hebrew-speaking Jews because their widows were being neglected in the food distribution. Essentially, there was this tangible need in the church that was not being properly met, and it was beginning to cause divisiveness within the church. And then seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, were then chosen to help preserve the unity by meeting this tangible need that had arisen in the church. In other words, they absorb the shock of the complaints and problems going on in the church in order to maintain the unity of the church. Basically, this was tearing the church apart. This issue, this tangible thing, but somebody stepped into that role to help actually maintain this unity. The aim was to preserve the unity of the body, but the means was by stepping up to serve to meet the tangible need. You know, many see the dynamics between the apostles in the seven in Acts 6 as a paradigm to understand the relationship between elders and deacons. Therefore, deacons should be shock absorbers who spot and meet need tangible needs to protect and promote church unity. When there are these problems, these tangible needs that are pulling apart the church, they're not being like, I hope the elders do something about this. But they actually meet that need. They help preserve the unity within, within the body. Deacons are also to be servants. The word deacon literally means servant, but they are a particular type of servant. They serve to support the ministry of the elders for their overall good of the church. Again, in Acts 6, although this was an important and pressing issue, the apostles understood that the best way they could lead and serve the church was by not getting involved in coordinating all the tangible needs of the church, but by giving themselves more fully to prayer and the ministry of the word. This was a huge, divisive issue, but they still thought, this is not what we should be doing. Our main responsibility is here. Therefore, the seven were appointed to serve as their assistants to coordinate the tangible needs of the church in order to support the ministry of the apostles. So in a similar way, deacons serve as assistants to the elders in order to serve and support them in carrying out their primary responsibilities. If all the church does is put out fires, and is not feeding the flock with God's word, you're going to have a really unhealthy church. Ten needs important, God's word more important. Let me just know one difference between elders and deacons. Deacons are never called overseers in scripture. They may have some oversight over a particular ministry or function of the church, but it is a subordinate and delegated authority under the general oversight of the elders who have the responsibility for and spiritual authority over whole congregation under Christ and his word. Now, I know that was a lot, so let me try to pull this all back together. Again, the big picture is elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, and the congregation does ministry. Or in the language of Ephesians 4, Christ gives leaders to his church as gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. The leaders don't do all the ministry. They lead and facilitate, equip the saints to do ministry. Now, before we close, let's think about the situation in Acts 6 again. And I want us to notice how discipleship permeates the entire account. The church was making disciples, and the number of disciples increased. The problem arose because the number of disciples increased. You could say that this was they only had this problem because they were discipling a diverse group of people. They weren't just discipling Greek speaking Jews, they were also discipling Hebrew speaking Jews. You put them all in the same room, you got problems. So, part of their problems came about because they were actually effectively making disciples among different uh, segments of society. And the problem was resolved through mature disciples stepping up into the role of leadership. And as a result, the word increased and the number of disciples multiplied. You can see this entire account through the lens of discipleship. They were a church effectively making disciples, so that when the church in Jerusalem needed mature disciples who were qualified and willing to serve, it doesn't seem like they had any problem finding them. Now, for us, I know that there are so many problems in our church, and I'm sure that we feel the weight and we feel the effects of all those problems. But what I want us to see and understand is that the biggest problem and the biggest vacuum in our church is mature disciples willing to commit to lead and serve. I'm not just saying that for our church. I'm quite sure that is the biggest problem, biggest vacuum in any church out there. A lack of mature disciples willing to commit to lead and serve. So as we see that vacuum, we must not stay seated as passive spectators saying, I hope the elders do something about that. But we must learn how to recognize biblically qualified leaders. And we ourselves should aspire to be biblically qualified leaders, even if we never lead and serve the church in a formal office. Now, Like the Jerusalem church, may we effectively make disciples so that there is no shortage of biblically qualified men and women who are willing to step up and serve Christ's church. So that as every member is equipped for the work of ministry, more lost people May be transformed into Christ's disciples, who then transform the Lord. I know. So, all that's what we desire for the glory of God that more people might know and follow Him. So, as we close, here is the life application. First, pray that current and future church leaders will be biblically qualified. Second, pray and ask others to help you to develop your biblical qualifications, even if you never serve formally in a leadership office. And third, pray about serving more formally to meet some of the tangible needs in our church. So leadership in the church is not meant to be abused or abandoned. But once again, the one thing is, we need to lead and serve our church. Can we all stand as we respond to God's word?